Hi, everyone. Welcome to Positively Dreadful with me, your host, Brian Boyler. Good news, there will be no interminable introduction today because it's our last show of the year. And so instead of talking about a thing, uh, we're going to break new ground in podcasting by opening the mailbag and taking a bunch of your questions. Um, My dance partner for today is Crooked Media's very own queen of hysteria and very smart question answerer, Erin Ryan. Hi. Hi. I'm I'm excited to be here. Yeah, it's great. Um, I was like super excited when this idea came up in our in our secret positively dreadful planning meetings. Um, and now it's happening. Yay. Um, so I'm not going to pretend that like I'm getting these questions cold because I'm actually going to read them. Um, and they're about half on politics and half on other stuff. So I figure we'll like start with uh, politics since... I can probably answer those more credibly and then switch gears and then call it a year. How does that sound? Sounds great. All right. First question is from Mark and he asks the following hypothetical events are real concerns with the GOP led house and democratic Senate. He notes it's not a complete list, but they are one. We blow through the debt ceiling and crater the world economy and are paralyzed by not having control of both chambers. We, I suppose he means Democrats. Two, uh, we avoid a debt ceiling showdown by striking a catastrophic deal that cuts the welfare state. Three, a parade of impeachments. Four, the special select committee on the laptop from hell. So that's the preamble. The question is, how do Democrats get organized and situated to either contain these situations or stop them before they start, given that they're not even interested in raising the debt ceiling with full control of Congress? Hmm. Aaron. <laughs> Starting out small. Uh, yeah. I see. Democrats. Well, what the fuck? Uh, this is going to sound a little bit. I don't know. Maybe maybe I'm just I've been a little bit deliberately not engaging with all of the possible doomsday scenarios that are coming up, because I feel like sometimes when we sit around and like ruminate on how things can go the the very worst possible way. I feel like sometimes we give them ideas Um, like, and and by breathing life into like the possibility of something like Republicans knowingly tanking the world economy um, that kind of normalizes it in a way. I mean, of course it's something we should be worried about, but I also want to think about the way that we talk about news and the way that we approach news and the way that like the discourse goes I think that sometimes just brainstorming doomsday scenarios kind of normalizes them and serves as a kind of beta testing ground in a way. That's very high-minded of you. Um, I completely disagree. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I mean, not just because like I spend all day, every day, like in a sweat about what Republicans are going to do and how Democrats are going to get caught flat-footed by it, but um, because, I mean, just in general, like the GOP is a, is a is a well-oiled machine of coming up with rat fucking schemes, right? Like it's kind of what the party's raise on debt is now. They've done it with the debt ceiling, so there's nothing new about the debt ceiling or impeachment or whatever that they haven't already done before, right? That's that's well-trod territory for them. I mean, I can even remember when Democrats lost the House in 2010. There was a whole question about like, well, it's the Republicans, so naturally they're going to start taking hostages. The debt ceiling is coming up what are you going to do about it? And, and, um, I was in a scrum with Harry Reid, and someone asked him about it. I, 
maybe it was me, somebody asked him about it. And he said, we want Republicans to have buy-in on the debt ceiling. And it like set in motion this horrible chain of events that led to Republicans just kneecapping Obama. Um, you know, it was horrible. Um, and it was also very foreseeable. And Obama and Democrats in the country would have been just better off with a better understanding of like how hardball Republicans were willing to play and and trying to beat him back before they could could get there. Um, and it's like 12 years later and it seems like they're ready to make the same mistakes over again right. with like, I think some, some, ex it's not exceptions. There's, there's glimmers of like lessons learned from the Obama era that I think might prevent us from, from hurtling into like a worst case scenario. But if, if I can rant a little bit longer, um, <laughs> it's like the, the main root of my beef with Democrats is that they've like generally divorced this question about what to do about Republican nihilism from other questions about how to build the party, right? Like it's like they think of it as separate from policy questions or other strategy questions. And so when they go out to like find candidates or plan, plan party strategy, we can sort of take for granted that like, okay, we're, we're dealing with a party that's overwhelmingly like pro-choice. Um, they're, Definitely for making sure that people have health insurance. Um, they would raise the minimum wage if they had the votes, right? Um, and if the time comes, they'll be ready to vote on stuff like that. But they never factor in the same way, like, what what can we do to crush Republican authoritarianism, right? Like, okay, maybe we need to investigate the bejesus out of Donald Trump or shut down debt limit sabotage strategies or, uh, you know, we're going to need our members to vote to abolish the, the filibuster or whatever. And so when, when like time comes to actually engage in partisan conflict with Republicans, they're just not ready, uh, like not ready to abolish the filibuster, not ready to abolish the debt limit. And so instead of taking care of that stuff now and beating Republicans at their own game, there's going to be a big messy thing and we don't know how it's going to shake out. So that's, I think the problem that Mark is alluding to, um, and I, I agree with it. And with all that said, I still think proactivity is going to be the Democrats best friend. Like th they clearly took a pass on being as proactive as possible by not just getting rid of the debt limit now while they still control the house and the Senate. Um, but so when the new Congress gavels in like the leadership and the white house should all just say our offer is nothing. Like you will raise the debt limit with us because we're responsible and it's the United States of America and we don't default on our debt. Uh, and if you wreck the world over it, like there'll be a place in hell for you, but we're not going to give you anything. And then by dint of having said like, no, there's no negotiation here. The extortion scheme will become very clear because Republicans are going to keep saying, well, we demand this. And we're They say, no, like we don't give you anything for this. Mm -hmm. And if that happens, then like I think there's a reasonable chance, although who knows, that Republicans will just do what they did after the first time Obama screwed this up, um, where Obama after that stopped negotiating and Republicans were just like, oh, well, if, if we can't trick him into negotiating, then we just actually have to raise the debt limit. Um, the impeachments part of the question is I don't think you can't stop House Republicans from doing an impeachment if they want to. Um, but like Senate Democrats could announce their own investigations now. Like Republicans are out there saying, we're going to investigate this, 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 and this. And like Senate Democrats just won their 51st vote. They could talk about 
what they're going to spend their time investigating. And it could be like the $2 billion bribe Saudi Arabia gave to Jared Kushner or Trump's tax returns, which just came over to, to Congress from the IRS. Um, like whatever Elon Musk is doing with our DMs on Twitter, whatever. Um, like they should say that stuff. The reason Mark, the questioner knows about the laptop from hell is because Republicans talk about it constantly. So Democrats, like two can play that game, but first Democrats have to realize that there's a game being played. Well, you know, the, the kind of tired cliche when we talk about Democrats negotiating poorly in Washington is Lucy with the football, like Republicans mm -hmm. are Lucy with the football. Why do we have to keep kicking it? I think is, is a question you're asking. Why do we, why do we keep letting Lucy think we're even going to try to kick the football? We don't have to do that. You know what I mean? Like, I think that your point that they should just not negotiate and be like, this is what we're doing. You're raising the debt, the debt limit and nothing you get nothing in return because this is just what you're supposed to do. I think that's the that's the right move. I also think to the to the laptop from hell investigation and the impeachment investigation. My view on what I actually think that Republicans having the House is giving Republicans a great opportunity to make sure that 2024 is a blowout in favor of Democrats. This is like keeping them on that on the national stage, keeping them being as goat rodeo as possible. We know that it's not going to be a well-run machine. We know that there are going to be people who all they want is attention for themselves and they don't really care about party uh, you know, priorities. They just care about getting attention. I don't think that they are going to be efficient in accomplishing all of those goals. Obstructionism, yeah, easy. Just sit down in the middle of the road and don't do anything and then you're obstructing. But it's a little bit more complicated to navigate through an entire Congress doing these investigations that are already kind of difficult politically to pull off, given the fact that not every single Republican is on board with the, with the fringes of the party, and do this Hunter Biden laptop investigation when discussions of Hunter Biden inevitably bring up comparisons between like, well, Hunter Biden doesn't even like, he doesn't work. He wasn't given a government job by his dad. You know, I feel like yeah. it's a, it's a kind of a Streisand effect move by Republicans to try to investigate Hunter Biden. Um, yes. If, if Democrats do the counter thing and like, okay, let's talk about Ivanka and Jared and let's, let's, let's peel back the layers there. Um, yeah. I, you can feel Mitch McConnell, like he wants to do what you're talking about. Like not let Biden have any more wins, just kind of sit quietly. Don't do any more dumb hostage taking. And Kevin McCarthy's just like, how, like, like what Nazi title should I give Marjorie Taylor Greene? Like she will be our Uber group group and Fuhrer um, of the House <laughs> House Republican Conference. And and McConnell just wants to because he's been he's been through this over and over and over again where Republicans like blow their chance to win the next election by acting like shitheads in the current Congress. Um, but you're right; it just seems like they're going to do it. And the question is like, given that McCarthy controls the House, but McConnell can only filibuster in the Senate. Like what damage is McCarthy going to do? And if it's like, doesn't raise the debt limit, then we don't know what the future is going to look like in like any number of ways. So it's scary. And like in, in, you know, I think we're not going to negotiate is the second best approach. The best approach is we're taking this out of your hands. Cause like you don't get to trifle with us and we have the votes now. Mm -hmm. And then not only is the, like the, the threat diffused, but like you look strong, you won the fight. They mm -hmm. were threatening to do like punch you in the face and you like beat them to it. 
Um, and I like, I just want the Democrats to be more like that all the time, knowing that Republicans are the way they are. And, um, I probably won't sleep well until they evolve into that. I think also, you know, one final thought on this question is Mm -hmm. right now is not a good time for politicians to look like they're fucking around with economics. Um, I think average Americans and, and the conversation about inflation is something that's really, people are talking about it a lot. People are thinking about it a lot. And if there is a way for Democrats in their messaging to tie Republican stunts to real world pain caused by, you know, caused to American families, um, I think that's a way to make it so that Republican uh, constituents are so upset by their representatives because they're actually hurting. You know, I, I feel like yeah. there's there's a messaging piece to this too, that it's not just about, you know, people legislatively making moves, negotiating, not negotiating. It's also about people that are pro-Democrat or speaking about, you know, left-wing issues, tying Republican malfeasance uh, to actual, like, I hate the phrase kitchen table issues because it's so, I find it to be condescending, but to, to the real lives of average Americans who don't spend, you know, 12 hours a day scrolling through Twitter or Mastodon or whatever we're looking at now to get our news. I think they need to tie it to, like, real issues that real people are experiencing. Yeah. Okay, moving on. Uh, Hadoken on Twitter. I don't know if that's a handle or like a reference to Street Fighter. I'm sorry to this questioner. Um, After a few days thought, is there any new path to success for Dems regarding independima, which he defines as Kirsten Cinema going independent? Huh. Is there an, is there, can you read the question again? Yes. Is there any new path to success for Dems regarding cinema going independent. I think the question is, is, can they figure out a way to like edge her out of politics so that they could run like a regular Democrat in Arizona in the next cycle? Um, so that a, they have a better chance of keeping the seat and B the new Senator won't be a crazy person. Yeah, that's a tall order, but I think uh, I have some I have faith in Arizona voters. They've proven themselves to be like slightly uh, more sane than insane over this last election cycle. So that's good in the, the last two election cycles, actually. Um, I am of the school of thought that Cinema did this because she wants to preserve her reelection possibilities. Like she would obviously be primaried all the fuck if she were running as a Democrat in Arizona and she would probably lose out. Now she can run for re-election as an incumbent independent, you know, everybody pretty, pretty easy to follow logic there. But I also think that the people that would vote for her would also be taking votes away from a Republican in Arizona because Republicans in Arizona are so nuts that I feel like there are kind of like self-styled people who believe themselves to be centrist, like a Megan McCain type person um, who would maybe be drawn to cinema, but I can't see any democratic voters be like, you know what we need. That's interesting. Cause like the, the thinking has always been, you know, like Republicans will vote, you know, whatever Carrie Lake just got in, in Arizona in a race for governor or whatever, or what's his name? Um, like Masters. Blake Masters, the guy who looks like he smelled a fart always. Um, uh, you know, they got 40 
some percent, right? Like, and that is probably representative of the, the hardcore GOP electorate. Um, I think the thinking has been that if it's a three-way race between, say, Ruben Gallego, Kirsten Cinema as an independent, and Carrie Lake or Blake Masters, um, that the hardcore Republican is going to keep that 40-something percent. She's going to get who knows, a tiny amount, maybe even just 10%, but enough to cost the Democrat the race. But it is interesting to wonder, like, if if you had put a sort of corporate centrist independent into the races that were just run in Arizona without, um, like, like, with very, like, low approval among Democrats, where Democrats had rallied around someone else, would you have maybe seen a different split than what I'm imagining? And that's... I don't know. Um, yeah, I, 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 I think that Ariz- I think that Arizona is a less look. I've spent a lot of time in Arizona. Got married in Arizona. You know, I I don't think that it is as right wing fringe Facebook ant as like the national media kind of makes it out to be. I think that there's enough quiet people who think of themselves as centrists in Arizona that would vote for a. Um, independent Kirsten cinema. And they're mostly people who vote for Republicans now. That's, that's okay. just my, my vibe read. All right. Uh, so I, I guess I kind of think that my, my, my hunch is that she's kind of one, like I think Gallego or whoever, you know, seems like the best Democrat to, to run on the democratic ticket should pay careful attention to the polling and if and if it looks like cinema loses no matter what, right? If it's just cinema versus a Republican and she's losing and there's no Democrat in the race, then go ahead, enter the race. Like if the seat's gone, give it a sporting give it a fighting chance. Like just enter the race. But if it if it looks like entering the race as a Democrat splits the Democratic ticket, probably throws the Senate race to Blake Masters, but just capitulating to Kirsten Cinema and like conceding that she outsmarted everyone allows, uh, like makes it possible to beat the Republican and keep her in the, in the democratic caucus. Then you probably just have to bite the bullet and let her, let her like have her cake and eat it too. I mean, Ugh. it sucks, but she did a very shrewd thing. And that's such a cynical take that I, I feel as though, Voters, I mean, and maybe this is on Democrats to keep reminding voters or progressives to keep reminding voters what Kirsten Cinema did. Like, who knows what she's going to be the next time? Yeah, she's not a known quantity. She is. She is guaranteed wackiness. And, and yes, it, it's just not. It's not a good way for this constituents of a state to actually be served by their elected officials. To have their elected officials be erratic and completely like an unknown quantity. Yeah. I mean, even if, even if, you know, it, it's just an uncontested democratic primary, the primary should still be against Kirsten Cinema, right? Like yeah. if you're going to run the race, you need to make it clear to the, whatever it was, 49% of Arizonans who voted for Mark Kelly and Katie Hobbs. Like we need you to not be taken in by this independent thing. Um, like she's out of the party. Like she's still caucusing with the Democrats in the Senate. Fine. That's better than the seat being in Republican hands. But like you need a credible senator, somebody who like isn't just friends with a bunch of 
her donors and doing whatever right. they want. Um, well, she has like so the question the ch- mark dum-dums. She's the question mark dum-dums flavor. Like, what flavor <laughs> is this? I don't know. Like, why would you vote for a question and mark? Like, and, like, probably walks around with that flavor of dum-dum in her mouth while oh. she's wearing her, yeah. She gives away question mark dum-dums energy, for sure. <laughs> All right. Well, sorry to Hadoka to not have, like, some sort of, like, there's one cool trick Democrats can do to re- uh, like turn this back around on on Kirsten Cinema, but like it's also like there's time, and we'll like Democrats will will figure out what the optimal move is. Okay, Matt asks, do you think Raphael Warnock made the right choice by not attacking Herschel Walker more forcefully, or would he have beaten him by a wider margin if he presented himself as more of a fighter? Similarly, Robert on Twitter asks. Uh, As a mixed-race Southerner whose politics are rather in line with Senator Warnock, his unwillingness to define, or you might say speak the truth about, Herschel Walker drove me nuts. What should we take from the fact of his light-touch strategy ending in victory? Well, I think that it's really important to think about what type of person Reverend Warnock is and whether or not him attacking Herschel Walker more forcefully would have felt authentic to voters because I feel as though authenticity matters. And if Warnock is not like, like I feel like he and Tammy Baldwin have some similarities in that they're both very progressive and uh, good senators, but they're not mudslingers really. And it might've felt a little out of character to suddenly see Warnock slinging mud. I think all's well that ends well in this case. You know, he he ran the campaign he ran, um, and it was a a pretty tough fight against a really terrible candidate. Um, A lot of people were pointing out how terrible a candidate Walker was. I I don't know that it was like a secret that Warnock would have been letting us in on if you were like, hey, this guy's a fucking walking concussion. Um, But I, I do think that in this case you can't really Monday morning quarterback a victory. You you know, maybe it would have been like less, maybe it would have been less stressful. Maybe it would have been less down to the wire. But I also think that he ran the campaign he wanted to run. He had like so much money to run the campaign. So it's not like, oh, he had limited resources. He ran the campaign he wanted to run and he, and he won. So I guess that's all. That's kind of my takeaway from it. Yeah, I'm, I'm, generally in the like all's well that ends well camp and it's fine to move on. Um, I'm glad the question was asked because there was this sort of after action effort to, um, to treat Warnock's victory as if it was somewhat extraordinary in the context of the midterms. And that's why, that's where I feel like the, the, um, first questioner, Matt, um, who suggested maybe he would have won by a wider margin if he had, gone negative is worth dwelling on. Um, and I get that you don't want to ask a politician who's of a certain kind of character to act in a different way, in a way that makes them seem like uncanny to voters and then they lose their appeal. But I also don't, I don't think that it is, um, like mutually exclusive to combine like, um, rectitude, you know, the holiness, the kind of the aura of, godliness that surrounds Raphael Warnock with blunt truths about somebody like Herschel Walker, like his, you know, his sins are carnal. Like a reverend should be able to make the case against him to, to the public. I, so that's the backdrop. I, and I, and I, I want to preface my larger point 
by saying like, I think Raphael Warnock is one of the most admirable people like in America. Um, and, and the moral force of his politics are a huge asset to him. Like he has this thing, um, where when he starts to talk like on, in a Senate floor speech or whatever, people who didn't think they'd be interested become totally spellbound by what he's saying. Right. And that's a amazing talent. Um, but after he won the runoff, it was like, maybe he'll be the next Democratic presidential nominee. Um, and if you're going to go there, then I think you need to ask, like, did he run an extraordinarily successful Senate campaign? And I don't think the evidence really supports that theory. Um, like, I, th I think you have to compare him to that band of high profile statewide Democratic candidates, um, incumbents in particular, who ran against hyper mega challengers. So like Mark Kelly in Arizona, Gretchen Whitmer in Michigan, John Fetterman in Pennsylvania, Maggie Hassan. And then you've got to acknowledge that of all of the MAGA candidates who ran against those people, like Herschel Walker was probably the worst. And I'd say definitely the worst, except Doug Mastriano might have been like tied for his bad. Um, uh, and when you add those two things up, it looks to me like Warnock underperformed. Like he won water under the bridge, as you say, all, all's, all's well that ends well. Um, and then you have to wonder, like, could it be a coincidence um, that Warnock was also the most reluctant to go negative and exploit Walker's MAGA awfulness? And I, you could argue it, but I don't think it would be a very persuasive argument. Um, and so my hope for Democrats is that, is that, one, they don't get bamboozled by people who'd say that the key to Warnock's victory was his sort of like, I'm going to ignore Herschel Walker's yeah. uh, character character problems and only talk about Medicaid. Like that, that would be a bad lesson to take. And my hope for Warnock is that if he runs for president someday, he wrestles with what I was talking about a second ago, this like how to marry his rectitude with partisan politics. Um, because again, they're not mutually exclusive right. and it'd be a super high stakes gamble that like we, the, the country couldn't really afford to lose. If he were to go run a, a, they go low, we go high campaign in this day and age, especially like when the Republican bench is so dirtied up with cruelty and corruption, um, just because he's not comfortable being unkind to even bad people. I mean, sure. Sure. It, I mean, yeah. So I think, I think that there's a, there's sort of a, this isn't a black or white issue. It's not every Democrat should run in every campaign by pointing out the bad things about their opponents at, at every turn. Um, I feel as though maybe the strategy behind this, and this is just, I feel as though the strategy behind it was Walker's craziness speaks for itself. It's why Katie Hobbs didn't want to uh, debate Carrie Lake. She didn't, she was like, you know what? I don't want to give her a bigger platform to just say her stuff. Like what she's doing kind of speaks for her, speaks for itself. What she's saying speaks for itself. Let her talk her way out of a lot of people that would otherwise vote for her. I think a place where a candidate, this was, I think 2020 really missed the opportunity to to not smear it, but to, to bring it home that their opponent was 
aligned with a really bad party was um, I think about the Sarah Gideon Susan Collins race a lot and how Gideon just, you didn't, you couldn't really tell from her campaign materials, like who she was running against or why. Um, and Susan Collins is somebody who is a lot less on their face offensive than Herschel Walker and some of the things Herschel Walker said and Herschel Walker believed. So I think if a person is running against a Susan Collins, a palatable Republican who nevertheless supports all of, almost all of the same issues that the far-right fringe Republicans support, I think it's really important for candidates to bring that up a lot. Like, look, you think you're voting for this nice lady, you think you're voting for this nice person, but actually this and this and this. With a Herschel Walker, I think you have a little bit more room to, to say, like, how... How much of this do I need to point out to voters and how much are they just getting from this candidate, saving me the work of having to be a mudslinger? And this is, you know, devil's advocate, but that's that's yeah. a thought that I have about positive and negative campaigning. It's Your point about Katie uh, Hobbs is interesting, but I, I kind of think it cuts the other way in that, like, I don't think it was the optimal strategy for Katie Hobbs, but if you say my opponent is such a liar... I am not going to debate her. Like you've you've said the thing that you claim you're not going to say, right? Like there's a ter- apophasis or something. Mm-hmm. There's some literary term where you pretend you're not saying the thing that you're saying. And um, you know, the best Warnock could muster was like my my candidate or my opponent has like a complicated relationship with the truth. You know, these wouldn't even wouldn't even go to say so far as to say like he's an untrustworthy person. He can't. You know, I, I think I think he did get a little bit more comfortable with how dishonest Herschel Walker was in the runoff, but in the in the in the general election, he was really light touch about it. Um, and I think going, you know, saying my opponent is too dishonest to debate. I don't know if it would have worked better or worse, but it would have been a more effective way of of shining a spotlight on Walker's defects. And I think I think if you want to marry what makes Warnock such a good person and like such a good brand with the kind of politics, you know, necessary to let people know that you take seriously how dangerous your opponent is, is like Herschel Walker's caught lying all over the place about terrorizing his exes and, and then, you know, uh, pressuring them to have abortions while running to criminalize abortion everywhere. And, you can say something like, you know, I pray for Herschel Walker and his family. This has to be a trying time for them. Um, but this is this oh, families, breaks families, plural. families. I, yeah. Right. yeah. His, his, his <laughs> half of the Georgia electorate, which is his children. Um, <laughs> um, you know, this is, this is, has got to be awful for them, but this also breaks faith with voters in an irreparable way. And he should drop out of the race. Like, I don't think that that sacrifices the, the air of rectitude that I think Warnock wants to carry himself with while also what, what does the media do with that? They, I mean, right. Multi-day feeding frenzy on whether Warnock should, or whether uh, Walker should drop out about how big of a liar he is. And, you, there's, I don't think that there's like a great substitute for that kind of leadership from the top of a ticket, just kind of hoping that your surrogates and the news media take care of it for you will result in like the news media moving on to something else at some point. So mm-hmm. anyway, it's a bit of backseat driving. It's over. He won 51 seats. Democrats get to subpoena stuff. It's great. But if he's going to 
use this victory as a springboard for the next highest office, then I think it's an important conversation to have. And I hope that the people around him take it seriously, even though they're doing this victory lap about how they won the, they, they ran the best of all possible races. Right. Or at the very least, he should bring on an extremely passive aggressive speechwriter who's, who's <laughs> like really good at throwing shade. I think that, that, that having a speechwriter who's really good at like just very delicately blessed, bless his heart sort of, uh, Minnesota nice backing into the mean. I think that's that's definitely a way to do it. That that works. I, I volunteer you. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Um, okay. Sam asks, can Brian share his thoughts on the ability of the environmental movement to shift from a defensive posture to a building posture? I worry that my movement is too stuck in blocking projects and doesn't know how to build environmentally sustainable projects like solar arrays, wind farms, affordable housing projects. Um, he's, he named me, but I, I, I throw it to you. <laughs> um, you know, I was just thinking um, recently about the proliferation of driverless cars and how they're really environmentally bad. Um, like, why are we trying to put more cars on the road when really the solution to, to fighting, you know, environmental decay and uh, the death of the earth is to have less fossil fuels on the road or fossil fuel uh, driven vehicles on the road. And I was thinking about how the reason that the environmental movement always seems to be playing defense is because there are so, there's like years and years and years of investment and backup and promises to people who are throwing money at innovations that enable more fossil fuel burning uh, that it, that are uh, not environmentally friendly solutions. You know, we have all of this money and heft behind, like you know, driverless cars is just one example. But there are other other projects that are not environmentally good. And so, what has to happen is we have to 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 fight against the progress of these uh, environmentally bad projects rather than coming up with our own things. I feel like that's not. It's just kind of the state of things right now. I think what needs to happen is that there needs to be a lot of money behind innovating bold green projects. And then there needs to be a bold leadership in actually getting them started so that it's not, I don't know that it's something that individuals really can do beyond like pressuring their representatives to, to just be, just start the project, you know, like here, uh, the Keystone pipeline was something that I cannot imagine. There's no democratic equivalent of like, there's no green equivalent of like the Keystone pipeline. Republicans sometimes, or people who are not on the, the pro environment side of things, will just start a project and like, let people fight it out after they've already started doing it. And it, I think it goes back to what you were saying about Democrats and, and the answer to the first question about Democrats using their position to just like play to win instead of play by the rules, just playing to win. And I think that that's what needs to happen is there needs to be giant moneyed green projects that Democrats don't trip over themselves thinking about all the ways they can fail before they even start, just get started. And yeah. Okay. So, so what you, what, what you say there about, about not like tripping over their own shoelaces is essentially like my thought on this too. Um, 
I do think that there are probably that there probably is an equivalent of like the Keystone pipeline out there. That's a green thing that you could get all Democrats behind and then Republicans would try to stop it out of spite. But mm-hmm. in, the, in the spirit of you saying, don't give them ideas, I won't give them ideas. Um, the So I think it's timely that the question comes on the same day, like we're recording this, the day that the Department of Energy announced that we've harnessed fusion power. Like huge deal and like possibly world changing. Right. Um, and also, as you mentioned, like the Keystone Pipeline sprung a big leak. And for the 2010s, like a big organizing project of the environmental left was trying to block the Keystone Pipeline on the grounds that it would leak everywhere. And like, here we are. So on the one hand, they're vindicated. On the other hand, like what is the added value now of focusing a lot of resources on that kind of thing when you have electric cars everywhere solar uh solar panels so cheap that you could basically like put every house where there's sun give them some solar panels then they're clean right um now we have fusion power um and i think that like particularly in the post inflation reduction act era um my main thought is is that progress is like going to keep chugging along and it's not principally being driven by activists and that's that's fine like activists don't need to do a ton of heavy lifting for people to see what's superior about electric cars or solar powered homes and so on right and that the movement would just end up in a healthier place if they declared a kind of partial victory um and then got out of the way. Um, like there's this weird perverse alliance between NIMBYs and right-wingers and then also social justice environmental activists who will like bog down progress towards like a more environmentally sustainable future in community planning meetings. Um, and what we really need is what you were getting at, like swift deployment of these technologies. Um, and like we need it so that the incentives in the inflation reduction act can easily get from where the energy is to where the users are. Um, and like, we need to make it easier for people to live happily in cities where carbon footprints are smaller. Um, like we should be using nuclear power until we can replace it with fusion power, I guess. Um, and I, I, I feel like even though, We've locked in many terrible long-term effects of climate change and should be fo- like we should now be focused on decarbonization as rapidly as possible with, with the um, achievements that we've just locked in and that, are, that keep unspooling, right? They're, they're everywhere. Like get those out in the world as quickly as possible. And if, if that's your focus, like you'll A, mitigate the amount of harm from climate change that we cause by mid-century and um, simultaneously like um, get us more quickly to a place where we have like energy abundance so that like the, the adaptation to climate change will be easier the quicker we deploy this stuff because there'll be clean energy everywhere and we can use it to help make living in a two degrees Celsius hotter world easier. Um, so if I could, yeah, if I could like 
uh, offer the environmental movement (laughs) such a big concept but like environmentalists like a piece of advice it would be to to like switch energies to that because like as bad as the keystone oil spill is it's like not that big a deal compared to getting all the all the tools we already have at our disposal deployed yeah and i also want to say one quick final thought is that it's it's a, it was a real, we really fell for it, uh, kind of oil industry propaganda when we enabled them to drive the conversation about conservation to be about individual consumer choice. Um, and I would love to see the environmental movement embrace the fact that like you inconveniencing yourself slightly as a consumer is not the, not the big way to make progress in, uh, in the environmental fight. Like there are, I'm thinking about like when Austin had its blackout because uh, a couple years right. ago. Yeah. And the lights downtown were on and, you know, people were like freezing cold in their homes. And I feel as though that really was a stark example of what entities are able to use energy however they want. And I think it reminded people that like commercial buildings use a lot more, waste a lot more than individual residences. And I feel as though we we should, and I, I've seen the, the conversation around this turning a little bit to be like, wait a second, most of the pollution is caused by XYZ big polluters. I think rather than making environmentalism something that um, individuals need, oh, now I need to like have a stinky thing of compost on my on my like, you know, counter in order to, I think it should be focused more on like, look, these are the big polluters. Here is a list of them as voters, as consumers, as citizens, we can put pressure on our elected officials and on these corporations to change their practices. It's not the environment is the world isn't dying because of us. It's dying because of them. And we can unite to fight against giant polluters rather than trying to change our individual. I'm not saying don't recycle, but I'm just saying like the giant polluters are the culprits. It's not you, you know, it's not you taking one flight to go see your in-laws once a year. It's like the, there are giant corporations that are responsible and it's not like, it's not your fault. Amen, sister. Definitely fly to see your in-laws, um, but feel guilty once a about year. it. And, and, like, <laughs> and, and, and fly coach. <laughs> um, okay. Landon asks, what is your version of the end game in our current political warfare? What do you think are the most plausible two to three scenarios where we achieve a new equilibrium in our political structures? I love this question in particular because it, it, it feels like give me a few predictions that are almost definitely not going to pan out. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay. Well, I can shoot from the hip here. Um, I think that, the biggest world changing events are things that are totally unpredictable um, or that nobody saw coming. Um, COVID was a huge, you know, changed everything. 9-11 changed everything. Like there are, there is some giant event in our future, near or far, whatever, that is going to realign the way that things are done or have been done. And we don't know what that is because if we did, we would be doing things to stop it because the inertia of the system won't, it, it hates change. So the only thing that can like actually change things is something like giant and rocking. Um, so yeah, that, with that being said, I think what's going to happen is there's going to be some giant 
calamity and whoever has more strength in the aftermath of the calamity is going to gather the most power and hopefully the people that have their wits about them the most after the next calamity are going to be people that have their hearts in the right place but um who's to say nothing is guaranteed yeah i it, it it's you know we, we were just talking about harnessing the power of nuclear fusion like possibly the by the way they barely got any power out of that it's not like well, I'm gonna, they, okay they, but like they would have but like, the, but like the margins like the margins what, what, we need like giant we're like years away from like fusion generators yes but, but like but like this is this is this is a question with a horizon of years right it is yes, and like what is, is what is the cool. world what but, is yeah. the world okay but what does the world look like if like you can just say peace out to the petro state mm-hmm right people like what does a like a united states of america without an extractive fossil fuel industry look like what does the united states of america look like when the baby boomers die like who, who what's the gop like in that like so that's why i feel like the question is setting both of us up to be wrong and i uh-huh. like a pre- i appreciate your tack of saying the world is unpredictable and some shit is going to happen and hopefully like we're like when the wheel stops turning we're going to be on top and not the bad guys. Um, but, um, but in the spirit of trying to, um, like shoehorn the analysis into things that are like the current state of affairs. Um, I, I, I sort of penciled this out. Um, and it basically all revolves around my sense that the GOP is, um, is in a spiral, um, away from democracy that either will end in ruin and rebuilding for them or in like semi-permanent dictatorial victory. Like the thing you say, some shit will happen. They'll win an election and then never give up power. Okay. Like there's no scenario I can think of where they do kind of bad in the next election too. And then they start thinking, well, this Trump stuff is really bad and all this lying and incitement and Fox news bullshit isn't working. So we're going to like slowly deleverage ourselves and feel our way back to something a little bit more ethical. Like, I don't think that's in the cards. Um, uh, and if I, like, if they were to try, like, I just think that more Marjorie Taylor green type people would come out of the woodwork and beat them in primaries. And we'd be right back into the spiral. So it's like either, catastrophic collapse for the Republican party or catastrophic victory for them. Right. Um, and so the, the, the scenario that keeps me at this job, despite all the damage it's done to my health is <laughs> one where like Democrats just have to slug it out forever and basically never let the GOP win total power again. Um, and like, that sounds awful, but it's also, I think probably like the sort of main scenario. Um, and then the other scenario is one where um, the economy goes south or something, Republicans win, and then they pick up where Trump left off. Uh, they bring major media to heel. They cement their juristocracy. Um, liberals like find public life to be a less rewarding field to enter because it's a totally rigged game. So the best of us just kind of find other things to do with our time. And then we muddle through with a corrupt incompetent kleptocracy until it fails because it eventually will fail. Um, the, the third scenario is like the only hopeful one. Um, and it would also kind of feel like I think a just ending for the past 
decade or so, um, would be for for Donald Trump to lose the GOP primary um, in the next couple years, and um, that uh, he would then have a tantrum and leave the GOP and break the party in half. Um, so that's like the the Republican Party collapses fantasy, where where they not only do they, can they not win an election, but they like lose horribly. Um, and in that circumstance, you could have like a purging and a cleansing and then maybe a regrouping around like something more like good faith politics. Um, you know, the bad news there is that I think that when they did regroup, they'd be a pretty strong party. Um, but it would be like the John Kasich party and it wouldn't be like you were trapped in a room with an abuser. Um, and we wouldn't be worried about like bodies falling out of helicopters and stuff like that. Um, but uh, I also just, you know, I would not put any money on like justice being done kind of outcome for Republicans going all in for Trump. Like, I think it's it's just as likely that if somebody beats him in the primary, that person is going to get given like a huge boost and dividend for having beat Trump. And he'll like, even if it's Ron DeSantis, who's just like stealing from Trump, right? Um, like he and the mainstream press will treat it as like the ushering in of a new era where GOP finally turned the page on Donald Trump. And then DeSantis will have a pretty good shot at winning. So, um, yeah. So, uh, those are like the ways I can kind of see this going. Um, uh, but as you say, like, I, it seems like a really dumb thing to try to predict, not a dumb question, just a dumb thing for me to have chosen to answer because <laughs> who the, f- who the fuck knows what's going to happen, right? Like right. new pandemic, economic collapse. I, I just God think that there knows. are, I think there are too many moneyed interests in too many different parts of the world to enable, and I, I don't want to, to enable us to descend into to some like Pinochet hellscape. Um, I don't, I don't think that that's ever going to happen in our lifetimes, at least, um, there would have to be a long time of instability for, before that actually came to pass. Um, I do want to say that I think we'll know more. I think that right now the Supreme court is kind of a wild card here that we didn't really talk about. Not really a wild card, but Right now, the American people see the Supreme Court as a partisan institution, an unelected partisan institution that is Republican controlled and all of these people have lifetime appointments. And so that factors into who voters perceive as in power in Washington, because the Supreme Court can just like there's no checks and balances on them. They can basically say like, that's not a law. That is a law. And basically legislate from the bench, which is what they did when they when they overturned 50 years of president in Dobbs. I think that for as long as the American public perceives the Supreme Court to be um, Republican, conservative, fringe, out of step with the general ideas that most people have about how this country should be run, I don't think Republicans have a chance of that catastrophic victory that you're talking about. I think that for as long as there's a perception among the American public that this is this is what this, the court is and is going to be, we're going to kind of be in this divided, this state of closely divided, slightly lean Democrat, and 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 like a slight upside surprise for Democrats um, from from top to bottom of the ballot, because what we saw with with Dobbs and what we would see 
with other, you know, extremely right-wing moves. If, if, um, you know, if this North Carolina case ends up, whatever, if the Supreme, I just, I cannot see Republicans winning elections because of the Supreme Court. And, and I don't think that's what Alito thought when he was, you know, cockily leaking Dobbs in May. Um, <laughs> but I, I mean, it's, it was either Alito or Ginny Thomas. Can we agree that it was probably I, one of those? I things? think you're probably right. Yeah. You know, um, I, you know, we'll run a correction if it, if the leaker is revealed to be someone else. Yeah. If it's months from now. Yeah. Prove it Alito. Um, but, <laughs> but I, I, I just, I really think that we saw this election cycle, something that, that I think that Republicans should feel really, oh shit about. And that is that long game where they were like, what we need to do is like load up the judiciary and, you know, set the chess pieces up so that there's absolutely no winning. It, it's not a, a long-term winning strategy because they're not going to win elections as long as they are so locked into power in the judiciary. I hope you're right about that. Um, it's also like a really good tie into the next question, uh, which is from Whittakay on Instagram who asks, how do we talk about the majority when we have such an uneven population distribution? Um, and I take that question to mean um, to to um, allude to the fact that malapportionment in the Senate and electric uh, and the Electoral College make it harder for Democrats than it should be to turn voting majorities into victories. Well, I've talked about this before, but I think we need to purple up some red states. I think that we need to do uh, mass migration to uh, different parts of the country. Uh, no, but short of that, you know, one thing that we're sort of not talking about here is that a lot of the people that are the biggest problem are also among the oldest people in the country. And, you know, Donald Trump is not going to live forever people who are the most ardent Trump supporters, although they are between 45 and 60, which is a little troubling for gen Generation X, um, they're not going to live forever. You know, there there is, you know, time passes and things evolve just because the same people aren't going to be around next cycle, two cycles, three cycles from now than we're around before. I also think rem remote work is changing things. Remote work and crazy real estate prices in places like Los Angeles, New York, D.C., Boston, whatever, um, I think eventually are going to drive people to places that are like shoulder states, uh, like Montana, um, places that have like the culture that a person from like a coastal city would want to enjoy, but that don't really, they don't, they don't have the super high cost of living. Um, and, but I think that's going to be a little bit of a slow process. Um, we already, I mean, I, I hate to be like, we're going to drive up the real estate prices everywhere, but I do think we're going to see more people take advantage of remote work by choosing a standard of living that involve that that is accessible to them in, in states that maybe have more red voting patterns uh, in general. Also, climate change is going to flood Florida, so they got to go somewhere. Um, yeah. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Life doesn't come with a user manual, so when it's not working for you, it's normal to feel stuck. Therapists are trained to help you figure out the cause of challenging emotions and learn productive coping skills. It's the closest thing to a guided tour of the complex engine called you. BetterHelp offers all the benefits of in-person therapy, plus it's more convenient, more accessible, and more affordable. Plus, plus, we're in the throes of winter. The days are shorter and darker. Your family is bothering you. And wouldn't talking to someone other than them just make for a nice break? 
As the world's largest therapy service, BetterHelp has matched 3 million people with professionally licensed and vetted therapists available 100% online. Plus, it's affordable. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to match with a therapist. If things aren't clicking, you can easily switch to a new therapist anytime. It couldn't be simpler. No waiting rooms, no traffic, no endless searching for the right therapist. Learn more and save 10% off your first month at betterhelp.com slash dreadful. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash dreadful. All right, so the plan is pack up our shit, move our move our whole lives to red states that are maybe trending purple. Wait for Gen X to die and then when like you and I are six <laughs> when you and I are 60 we can finally take control yeah. of the country. Okay. Yep, that's the plan. I, that's the plan. Um no, I I mean, look, like I am not quite that like fatalist about uh, the the future of the country or the democracy or like the the malapportionment problems, um, and I do think that like you know just a, apart from the unpredictable and natural churn of things, like you know the people our age are becoming regular voters and we're much more progressive than the people who are dying, and so that's just going to you know have, like put positive pressure on outcomes in the country um, in the like immediate term to the sort of question, like, how do you talk about it? Like if you were going to try to intercede, take a shortcut to uh, a fairer democracy, um, uh, I think the way to talk about it is just to to talk about it. Like we think Americans should be politically equal. um, And because of that, we should reform our political system to do that. So we should abolish the filibuster. We -hmm. should add states to the union. We should abolish partisan gerrymandering or, or have like multi-member house districts or whatever you want to do so that, um, you know, Marjorie Taylor green isn't guaranteed a seat in the house for life. Um, you can do it by adopting the national popular vote interstate compact, which essentially is an end run around the electoral college so that the winner of the popular vote for president always wins the presidency. You can do it by adding seats to the Supreme court, right? Um, and the the key is is the and we're, I, I assume we're talking Democrats here because Republicans are obviously happy with the anti democratic status quo. But the the key is that you have to do those things, even in cases where it's not in your partisan interest to do it. Right? It has to be about the principle, or the whole thing is revealed to be an artifice and it collapses. Um, and I think that like you know it's 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 a slightly different thing to notice that an electorate is like, we will punish Republicans when they nominate fascists to saying we will reward Democrats when they change the rules of the system to be more fair. But it's like, it's on the same spectrum. Um, And I like, I do think that if Democrats could be like the party I talked about in question one, where they're organizing themselves around solving those challenges and not just the like kitchen table stuff or, or like responding to Dobbs or whatever, that um that it will be popular it'll be galvanizing to people um because it's there's like a there's like a really inspiring logic underneath it it's not just dumb process stuff like one person one vote is like uh you know people give up their lives to um to achieve that and so if you could get the party talking about it in that way, I think it might hasten 
our arrival at a place where we're like, okay, we don't have to worry every election about the possibility that we're going to like win more votes, but not gain power. Like it'll mm-hmm. just, it'll happen. And then, and then, uh, and then we can stop doing politics forever. Yeah, that'd be great. Um, and the, one, one more quick thing. Uh, one thing that we've, the, Georgia is a good example of why um, the way we think of votes being distributed and the way that we think of a state being a red state or a blue state isn't necessarily an end all be all. And I think that Georgia is a great example of how investing in local get out the vote efforts, mobilization efforts can turn a state from red to purple in a couple of cycles. I've heard Texas described as a state that isn't a red state. It's a suppressed state. So I think mm-hmm. that in the meantime, as we're waiting for my like Pollyanna vision of, of people just going and living, you know, in the grassy fields of Kansas because, you know, they want to they want a nice house and a yard for their dogs to play in. Um, I think realistically what we can do in the short term is invest and get out the vote efforts locally in places where the vote is historically suppressed. Agreed. Agreed. Next question is on is from Byron on Instagram, but um, I think he knew what you were going to say and you already answered it. Is <laughs> what what can a Canadian do to help? And the answer is move to Wisconsin and apply for citizenship, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, learn how to make cheese. You get fast tracked into uh, uh, Wisconsin citizenship if you are a cheese monger. No, I'm just kidding. That's not true. Um, what can a Canadian do? This is a fun. This is a fun question. One of my um, I have an ex boyfriend who is like the only one that I'm still friends with. He's great. Um, who is Canadian, and he was really. Um, he's a big crooked media fan too. Loves you know very invested in the like American political system, and um, he would help. Uh, volunteer for for campaigns. He would. I mean, you can't give money if you're a foreign national or to, to campaigns, but you can give your time. You can give your effort. You can. Um, you know, Vote Save America has like a million ideas for how to participate at all different levels of the uh, of of the system. I also think that this is just a general idea for people. Um, too much energy is given to national politics in the national media and not enough energy is being given to local politics anywhere because local media is dying. I think that one thing you can do is engage in your local politics, pay attention to what's going on, subscribe to your local newspaper, um, understand all of the different levels where you can make a difference and, and, uh, and get engaged that way. All right, we're gonna turn the page on politics questions uh, to fun questions now. Um, <laughs> That's how uh, that's how they were divided. In yeah, politics is absolutely it, not fun. Anyone who says it, it's fun is is a sociopath. In the in, yeah, in the note sheet I was given politics and fun. Maybe we should have like started with the fun <laughs> stuff. But um, uh, Patrick on Twitter asks, "What were some of your favorite films you saw for the first time this year? Could be new releases, could be old ones. Um, also, have you watched Andor? And if so, thoughts?" Um, before kicking it over to you, I have not watched Andor. I'm like in my in my like uh cohort of people I grew up with, there was like a split. Like we were all like Star Wars fans when we were kids. And then like half of us turned into like video game, comic book, sci-fi people who still keep up on the Star Wars stuff. And then like I'm part of the other cohort that turned into an adult. And I, <laughs> I stopped with all that. Um, you stopped having fun entirely. You devoted your entire career to, to engaging in misery. Yeah, just giving myself ulcers and shit. Um, 
uh, movies. Um, did you watch movies? Do you have time to watch movies? I understand Not you're really? preoccupied with other stuff. Yeah. So I'm, I'm like a, a part-time, I mean, I have a freelancer schedule, but I also have a, a one-year-old. And so that means like, and my husband works outside of the home. So that means that I am taking care of the kid a lot of times during the day and we're watching Bluey so she doesn't scream. Bluey, great, great cartoon. Australian. <laughs> um, I hope that she learns to talk with an Australian accent because that would be so cute. Um, I did watch Barbarian, though. Have you seen Barbarian? Oh, Barbarian was good. Yes. I, I'm a horror movie fan, like especially like good quality, thoughtful horror movie. Yeah. I, I really liked, I'm kind of a wimp about horror movies, but I love them. I'm drawn to them like a moth to the flame. So I like have to, like, before I saw Hereditary, I had to like read a synopsis so that I wouldn't be too scared. Um, and then I went and saw it anyway, and it still scared the shit out of me. But Barbarian, I thought was, I could, first of all, I couldn't believe it was written by a man. It was, it's one of those movies that is like, wow, this captures so many things about the experience of like, not only like femaleness, but like motherhood specifically. Um, I thought it was like really, really well done. Um, really impressive. Uh, I, I loved it. I thought um, it was like funny at certain parts. It was terrifying at parts. I, I loved Barbarian. I agree. And if if anyone listening is like a, a fan of just like really unsettling, scary movies, Smile is like a super effective horror movie. Like really hard to watch scary. At, and I like don't get scared by horror movies. I just enjoy them. But um those two in the like late, uh, late entries for for like good scary movies. Uh, I saw both of those um, in theaters. No, that's not true. I saw Smile in theaters and I saw Barbarian at home, but they're both like highly recommend. Um, mm-hmm. The Batman, the Batman was good, and so was Top Gun Maverick. Those were okay. Awesome. Top Gun Maverick is on is on my list. Um, I I feel bad because I'm certain. Like the question is like, did you see movies that weren't released this year and you just found them great? And I think the answer is probably yes, but I'm like an inveterate, um, like Netflix and scroll person. So, so like, I can't remember most of the movies I watch on my TV because probably at some point I got distracted. Um, uh, so I, I had to draw on movies that I saw in the theater. Um, and so I picked one highbrow, one middlebrow, one lowbrow um as just like just a way to to simplify things uh the lowbrow movie i I actually just saw it this past weekend um or i guess it'll be two weekends ago when this comes out um it's called violent night it's um it's like home yeah that looks fun it's great it's called it's like it's like home alone meets die hard meets like how the grinch stole christmas um i think i will be watching it for many christmases to come total joy also not a, a a lot to dwell on here about it um, but like in the next two weeks, just check it out. You'll have so much fun. Okay. Um, middle brow is where I picked Top Gun Maverick. Um, I think I'm like the, I, the, the exact target demographic, um, middle-aged white guy, um, <laughs> exper- experiencing crisis. Um, but also wants the old good old days back. Um, uh, but it worked in that way. Like I kind of fa- felt like it was a beacon from better old days when we could still organize society around like gathering people in a place, have them watch something broadly entertaining and appealing, and then talk about that instead of like groping or privilege checking or whatever, or like, you know, I saw some shit on Instagram and it made me feel inadequate. Like 
in the period when Top Gun Maverick was the thing people were seeing and then people would go talk about that movie, it was just better. Like, <laughs> what that might be like, I don't know, simplistic of me or um, not particularly high-minded, but I just like that the place that mass appeal movies had in society that I feel like has been lost a bit. And mm-hmm. I hope that that was a sign that there's still like a market for it. Um, yeah. They're like radio. I think it's just like radio yeah. used to be like the thing that was the center of everyone's lives and, and radio, you know, was surpassed by TV, but radio never went away. I feel like that is popcorn movies. I, I think going to see a popcorn movie in the theater is maybe not going to ever be as big as it was, but I don't think it's ever going to go away. I hope you're right because it's like, very, very essential to like my growing up too. So I, you know, movie theaters closing down hit harder than re- like restaurant closes down. Even if you love it, it's like there will be more. Mm-hmm. There's no shortage of like brilliant chefs. I can um, get, cook food at my house. You can't make a yes. movie. I can't make a movie at your house. Well, I just mean that I don't think that the experience of communal dining can go away. But like, mm-hmm. I think the experience of movie theaters could economically go away. And and if it. I just want them to be saved. Um, like it's my one, <laughs> my one reactionary idea. Um, and then I like wrote a whole treatise about uh, the best highbrow movie. And I don't know if I should um, go into it or not because it's kind of spoilerish and I'm not sure if you've seen it. And it, uh, the movie is tar. Okay. Don't tell me. I want to, I like, I'm so excited to see this movie. Oh, uh, it looks, okay. Can you just like, allude can you allude to some of the stuff that happens it's like about a crazy conductor right yes um (laughs) you can spoil it it's fine it's your podcast (laughs) i don't think it i think you might enjoy it more look like that's condescending you you are probably smart enough that you will get it right on first viewing the issue i had with it is when i saw it um i I actually didn't like it. I, I like made it through, um, watched it at home, not, not, um, at a movie theater. Um, but I think I didn't like it because I fell into a trap that I think that the people who made the movie set for everyone watching. Um, and I think the trap is like this. Um, and the reason I didn't like it is this is like the, the movie is set up as like, um, a story about this brilliant person who's also, highly predatory and I don't think that gives way too much. And so your inclination is to go to that like sort of central me too place um, where we argue about or think about how much redemptive value we should place on the artistic gifts of people who do bad things. Um, So in this case, it's the, it's the title character tar, like, she does bad things. Does she deserve to lose her place at the top of the heap for that? Um, and when the movie was over, I was like, okay, that's a fine question. It's an important question. It's like one we've all kind of grappled with for two or three years now. But if you're going to make that movie, you really ought to give us the whole character, right? Um, and uh, like, what is it like to be a, a genius? Um uh, what is it like when that amount of power, um, like starts creating bad incentives and temptations? Um, 
what is it like when a person who's feeling those temptations gives in? Do they feel remorse? Do they think that they're just they can get away with it because they're they're the shit, right? Um, and I'm watching it, and I'm like, the movie doesn't give me any of that. Um, and so I was like, I'm done with this. I'm like, I'm not going to recommend it. Uh, I think it's totally crazy that everyone's hyping it up. Um, but I ended up having this long conversation, um, with my wife and in-laws at Thanksgiving about it. Um, and as we were talking, my, like, I stumbled upon what I think is actually happening in the movie. And I still think I'm not going to overspoil it, but slightly maybe, um, the movie never actually shows you the main character's talent. It only tells you about it. You keep hearing about how she's brilliant. Right. Um, uh, and then we get taken in by that and start on our own kind of assuming, well, she's brilliant. So we should run this moral calculus about whether her gifts to the world cancel out her sins in some way. Um, and, uh, I think that the actual point of the movie is to make us question whether she was like accurately judged in the first place as being brilliant. And, and I, I think the answer when you watch the whole movie is no. And that the point of the movie um, is that, um, is that people, including bad people build reputations of their own brilliance on the force of personality uh, and then that creates this own its own momentum. And suddenly, you know, such and so is just hailed as a genius and it's taken for granted. Um, and then we, the public, like imbue them with like being deserving of forgiveness because they're talented. Right. And like how many people taken down in Me Too were actually just mediocrities who had heart, like fostered a, their own reputations for being geniuses. Like, I think it's probably, probably most of them. And it, so I, I think the movie is indicting its audience, us, me for like sort of taking leave of our ability to, to be critical about the characters in the movie and just taking it for granted that the main character is, it is a genius. Who's also a predator. Um, and it, it it's really actually like, no, you're just falling into the trap that Tar is setting for everyone else. And if that's what the movie is about, then I think it's like an incredible commentary on how we treat bullshitters who like make it to the top in society. Um, I admittedly am not certain that that's what the people who made the movie intended the lesson of the movie to be. Um, but I, you, you should watch it. And then, and then like, what well, we can talk about it on G you can, you can tell me, uh, <laughs> if I spoiled it for you, if I wrecked it for you, I'm sorry if I did. Um, uh, but after chewing it over, that's what I was left with. Um, and I think that that is just such a, like a rich vein to mine for a filmmaker, a book writer, a critic, like, why do we skip straight ahead? to having this debate about whether me too villain, me too villains or predators of any kind uh, deserve some sort of offsetting forgiveness if they've made big contributions to the world um, and not just be a little bit less credulous about who's actually brilliant. And mm -hmm. um, like we could use more of that and fewer mm. like Leon weasel tears. <laughs> <laughs> okay.
Okay. No, that sounds super interesting. I um, I was planning on watching it over this break, um, and now I definitely will. Okay, good. I I I've been wanting to like put this out there in the world. Like, I haven't read much of the like the main the the movie criticism about Tar. Just I know that it's widely acclaimed, and like I wanted to test drive this theory of the movie um, because I normally don't have like interpretations of movies that kind of veer wildly off of what everyone else is saying, but I did in this case and I didn't want to keep it bottled up. Um, honorable mention, uh, the menu is really fun. Mm. Good withering satire of foodies. Um, the unbearable weight of massive talent is a Nicholas cage movie that I thought was, it's a super meta movie about Nicholas cage, basically super fun. And, um, Banshees of Inishire also really good. Hmm fun yeah um for anyone listening also for you for your interminable road trip yeah i want to watch glass onion that's that's going to be a holiday lay around that's this that's the The um, new um the new knives out right yeah Yeah. i enjoyed knives out so i um i guess i'll be watching it in the next two weeks um okay sorry to go on interminably about tar and probably ruin it for some of the listeners but um uh, Ali on Instagram wants to know what's the best part about working at Crooked. What's the best part about working at Crooked? Um, well, like I don't know if, if this is a little bit of a peek under the hood, but like I'm a host of a Crooked show and I do a lot of like guest hosting and stuff, but I'm not like going into the office. I don't have a desk. Um, so the best part for me is that I get kind of the best of both worlds. Like I am both an employee and not an employee. Um, I get to like hang out with all the cool people that work there um it is the highest concentration of cool and nice people of any place i've ever worked um and i mean that like people are legitimately like stylish cool funny interesting super smart and totally not assholes um the people at crooked are just great top to bottom it's just the way that the company is um And, uh, yeah. And also because, you know, because I'm not like a full-time employee coming in and like, you know, having lunch at my desk or whatever, that means that like, I kind of can still have the, I have a pretty free schedule. The only time that I really have to do anything is when I'm recording or prepping for the show. So that's, uh, pretty nice that I have some freedom too. I don't get the, like to go into the office almost ever. And so I get to see my colleagues like, well, pre-pandemic, maybe three or four times a year, and now only like once this past year. Um, and so I think I like actually didn't even get to meet some people who cycled in and out um, between when pandemic started and when I uh, when I visited. Um, and so like for me, it's it's I guess how crooked has made it feasible to hold it together as a as as part of the company for Jesus over five years now. Um, wow. but wait, you came whole, on, you came on like what? 2017. Yeah. Like, right. Like right away. I was like, maybe like the seventh employee or six employee like early. Um, um, and you know, like a lot's changed. Like Democrats were, it's, it was much more political, like politically focused company. Then Democrats were like in, in out of power and Trump was the president and, um, like, everything was sort of geared towards like fighting America's way out of that mess. Right. Um, And then 2018 happens, Democrats get some power back and like 
you know, I that's when it's like, okay, what should Democrats do now that they have this power? And that gave rise to some disagreements among like those of us who are doing the politics stuff, at least on the on the content side. And what I think is great about working at Crooked is when uh, my bosses reluctantly admit that I was right about something. <laughs> um, uh, no, but no, it's 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 that even though I'm like out here in DC and every, everyone else basically is out in LA and like these things happen from time to time, it's that no one has ever let dis- disagreement get the better of creative production. Um, and so we can just turn dissenting opinions into more good work. Um, so like the positively dreadful episode I did a couple weeks back with, with Favreau, um, I think is like a good Testament to that. We had been kind of like slacking each other, uh, like an ongoing debate about Democrats, the kind of stuff that we were talking about when we were talking about Raphael Warnock a few minutes ago. Um, and rather than just like stew and, um, you know, whatever, like, let's just turn it into a podcast. And I think it was like a really good episode. I think it's one of our best episodes. And it's like, that gives you some sense of the spirit of the place. Um, so, uh, I hope that answers Allie's question. Yes. Yeah. I think so? It seems, okay. it seems, yeah. Okay. All right. Good. Um, well then Olivia asks, we've had some incredible movies and TV shows come out post COVID lockdown, but I've been really underwhelmed by new music. Do you agree with that premise? And why do you think the pandemic inspired better TV and movies than music? Yes, I agree with that premise, but I thought it was just because I'm starting to get old and my brain is losing. That's what I said. That's what I wrote down. That's so funny. I'm like, yeah, no, I, I, I'm like, eh, none of the music is good anymore, but I'm also like, you know, marching toward 40. Um, I think I just I just got there. Oh, you might just want to call. You didn't. No, <laughs> don't do it. No, don't do it. OK, stay away. Uh, OK, um, well, I hope I make I, it to 40 because you would feel real bad if I like died. Tragically. Yeah, no, I, ge- I generally wouldn't. And, and I've, I'm I excited I, I, to be in my 40s. I think life begins at 40, man. Like I'm, I'm just really looking forward to just not having it looming over me anymore um so yeah i do think music has gotten worse um and or it's just not less good i think is a better way of putting it and i think part of that is because um movies and tv are things that um when you're writing them you it's very lonely to write movies and and tv eventually like even if you start in a writer's room or you're you're brainstorming or you have like punch-up rooms or whatever there's always a very lonely, bleak time when it's you and a deadline and you're just in an office and you've got like a wall full of post-it notes and you're just by yourself writing. If during COVID, um, we were all like stuck inside. So there was no feeling of like, oh, I could be out in the world doing this stuff. This is, I did not get any good TV writing done during COVID, just putting that out there. But I'd imagine that some people would benefit from the fact that there's nothing else for them to do, but to be closed up and, and write and actually devote the time necessary to putting up something, putting out something that's like really high quality. Um, music is something that is inherently something that you do with people 
watching you do it. It's like a community. It's, it's more of a community. The process of making it of putting on a show is, is more about being in the same place with people. Um, and I also think music tends to influence other music and, you know, like you go to a show, you're in a band, you go to a show, you hear a band and like they influence you, you influence them. Like with less concerts, less music events, festivals, less places for musicians to actually mingle artistically, uh, music has kind of become this like lonely thing. And I don't think lonely music is always good unless it's like Phoebe Bridgers or like Bonnie Vare. But for the most part, <laughs> lonely music is is not as good as like music that you want to listen to in a big room full of people. Our thoughts on this are super compatible. Um, but like your experience as like an actual TV writer and sort of um, like drawing out how the COVID experience might. It's conducive. It's sort of conducive. like could yeah. be conducive to it totally news to me, like fascinating insight. Um, I would not have thought of that. If anything, like I might've even thought the opposite where like you need a writer's room and the writer's rooms are shut down, but like every, every like asshole with a acoustic guitar can sit alone in his house and come up with music. Um, but um, apart from just like, I'm 40 now and all the music seems bad and has for 15 years uh, because, <laughs> because everything was better when I was in my twenties. Um, the theory that I, um, have kind of, um, pulled out of my ass about this, um, is that pandemic coincided with this technological watershed, um, that helped preserve the market for good TV and movies. Um, and it left people in a place where they were hungry for televised entertainment, right? Um, pandemic, suddenly everyone's at home. Okay. Couch time, TV time. So there's demand there for, people who make TV and movies to put out good stuff. Um, music by contrast, sort of like what you were saying, um, we, like we have Spotify and we have Apple music. Um, but on the one, like a, those services are, are really mostly good for siloing people in their own tastes and playing them the same kinds of shit that they like over and over again. Um, and B the, the climate of diminished socializing just, I don't think is a good one for discovering new music. Um, like when I was stuck at home during the pandemic, I was definitely in, in the market for good new TV shows and movies to watch, but not like sitting there listening to music um, the way I would if I were commuting or at a concert or whatever. Um, uh, and, you know, when you're when you've got months of boredom staring in the face, you want emotional tension, you want cliffhanger endings, you want drama and action and you get that from tv shows and movies but you don't really get it from music like wonderful as music is it doesn't provide that specific kind of satisfaction um so i think maybe pandemic just kind of created a de demand side problem for music um and like that is sad if it's true but also now yeah. that everyone's just go into concerts again. Um, and you can imagine like the revival of music scenes in cities where talent is happening or whatever, um, that like it won't necessarily be a permanent condition. And I mean, we've had pandemics in the past before there were movies and television, but there were, de there was definitely music and 
there continued to be music afterwards. So like, I'm not, I think, I think it's probably just a blip and mm-hmm. I think our theories about why seem, seem smart. You know, am I, am I going to be the Debbie Downer of this? Because I don't think it's a blip. I think that the economics of being a musician are really challenging and there's no sign that they're ever not going to be challenging. And so fewer people are trying to make music. Fewer people who don't already have like a financial cushion have the ability to like be a professional musician because it's just not profitable to be a professional musician. Screenwriting, TV writing, on the other hand, if you are a person that is working steadily in screenwriting and TV, you are making a decent living. Um, And so economically, it is a feasible pursuit. So more people are, you know, it's more people are going to try to do screenwriting, TV writing the quality of the project is going to be higher because it's more competitive. Um, with music, fewer people are trying to do it because it is not a feasible way to earn a living. That's, and I, and I don't, yeah, like I don't see that changing. I feel like that has been true since before the internet. Maybe the internet made it more acutely true, but also it also it gave talented musicians a way to make maybe not like rich person money, but like enough to keep being musicians. And like, there have been poor, brilliant musicians in all of history, and they kept making music and like some of it's Mozart. Um, and like I don't know. Yeah, but I, Mozart, I, I, but Mozart was never trying to like rent a house in Los Angeles and everything was like four thousand dollars. <laughs> no, he was, like, I'm just saying, like, I don't know what the, I don't know what the land use situation in Vienna was in seventeen. Cost whatever, of cost of living is in in places with a big enough market to support a music career is really out of reach for a lot of working musicians. I agree. I mean, obviously I don't, I don't want to like trivialize the, how hard it is, but also like, you know, there was a Seattle scene back when Seattle was a cheap place to live and it changed music maybe for the worst, depending on your perspective, but it did. Liverpool was similar, like Detroit, New Orleans, like there, there will be, like the economics of music, I think will f- help find musicians in places that we don't think of as like entertainment hubs yet. But then those places will arrive, um, you know, with the innovative sounds of the place. And um, mm-hmm. I, I don't think that that process is over, even though it like, you know, it won't sound like rock and roll or 90s hip hop or jazz anymore. It'll sound different but it'll still be good. Um, And I also like, just really like that. I'm ending on the optimistic note here after you were just like, (laughs) music is done. No, it's not done. I just think that it's on a really like something. I mean, in Canada, you can be a working musician because the, the, the state subsidizes people who are like professional artists and musicians in Canada. And I, Byron from Canada, Stay in Canada, make music. Don't yes. move to Wisconsin, become a do really good music that makes everyone really excited to vote for progressive. That that's what you can do as a Canadian. Is is like yeah, yeah, yeah. Incept America, good, like wind of change, but for <laughs> American voting minds. Do do an arcade fire. Just do that. <laughs> um, I am out of questions. Um, should we just call it a call it a mailbag episode? We can call it a mailbag episode. Do you have any closing thoughts for? Positively dreadful listeners. Ooh, closing thoughts for positively dreadful listeners. Um, and this is just good. I'm just going to give a, a piece of advice that's just good advice year round, no matter who you are. 
Um, if you're feeling really out of sorts um, and you have like an hour before you have to do something, you know, the like hour anxiety phase, like before a, a conference call or whatever, lie down for 20 minutes and close your eyes. Like just set a timer for 20 minutes and don't look at your phone and just like lie down and close your eyes for 20 minutes. And that like nine out of 10 times, like helps bring me enough out of the funk that the next, the rest of the day isn't. I'm going to have to try that. It's going to become like a daily thing for me because that just describes me before any deadline or any meeting. Just, yeah. Just don't look at your phone. Eyes closed for 20 minutes, like set an alarm and then wake up when the alarm or get up when the alarm goes off. It doesn't matter if you sleep or not. Just 20 minutes of like just sensory deprivation for a short period. Yeah. It's the anticipation always like I like just spending 90 minutes recording this podcast is like the best and most productive and most with it. I felt all day and it usually oh, is the case it, and that usually is the case when i'm recording podcasts it's like the prep is really hard to get started and and as i'm prepping i'm like oh god this is bad and, and like not going the way i want it to go or how am i going to carry this conversation but then like in Once it, it gets going talking talking to someone you just kind of enter a flow state and it's like if i could harness that for all eight, 10, 12 working hours of my day, um, I'd be more productive and I'd feel better. Like I would just feel like I was like crushing it. But mm-hmm. most of the time I feel like I need that 20 minute lying down without my phone thing that you just talked about. <laughs> well, I hope it's helpful. Let me know how it goes. And I'll fill you in I on will. Tar after I see Tar. Yeah, yeah, we'll for real, for it. real. Aaron Ryan, thank you for doing the mailbag with me. Yeah, thank you for having me. This was fun. Positively Dreadful is a Crooked Media production. Our executive producer is Michael Martinez. Our producer is Olivia Martinez. And our associate producer is Emma Illich-Frank. Evan Sutton mixes and edits the show each week. Our theme music is by Vasilis Fotopoulos. Thank you so much for hanging out with us this year, and we'll be back in January.